0: Well, as we continue in our series on Converse Christianity, the question before us this morning is, who are the righteous? Uh, You saw, even in the Psalms, what seems to be a bit of a contradiction, you know, Psalm chapter one, the righteous one does all of these things. He walks in this way and doesn't walk in that way. He sits with these people and not with these people. And when he does the right thing, everything he does prospers. Or the psalm that we read, Psalm 32, seemed to see say the opposite. How blessed is the one whom God does not treat as he really is, who covers his iniquity and imputes to him a righteousness that's not his own. So who are the righteous? What I would like us to see this morning comes from a parable that's well known to most of us, which makes it difficult. We know the conclusion. We know the story. We know what we're supposed to think. We know who's the good guy and who's the bad guy, but I'm going to ask you for a bit to suspend what you know. And hopefully by the end also force us into some questions that might be a little more uncomfortable than we normally feel reading this particular parable. We know the story. We have two men approaching God. Their lives are different. I mean, even their postures are different where they, where they stand in the service is even different and surely Their prayers differ one from the other. One is holy and the other a sinner. We know the Pharisee and due to our culture and due to our Bible knowledge, we know what we're supposed to think of the Pharisee. We hear about him and, you know, we imagine him, you know, wearing the black hat in the film and every time he enters the scene, we all boo and hiss because we know he's the bad guy. But you're reading their text wrong if you believe that. He's not the bad guy. You wouldn't have thought it then. And if he were to appear now, you'd like him just fine. Uh, He would make a good neighbor. Uh, You know, if he ran for city council, you'd probably vote for him. I mean, countless churches would not only welcome him into their membership and more like him if he could gather them, but he'd probably quickly be rushed into leadership training. He's a good fellow. Uh, He is a good guy. Notice he's not a womanizer. He's not a bum. He gets up and goes to work every day, probably has a beautiful family, and his kids respect him. And you'll notice he's not a fraud. He isn't just all talk. He truly puts his money where his mouth is, right? He gives 10% of everything he earns. He ties all that he has. He fast twice a week. I mean, he really lives a life of spiritual discipline. And so he's no phony. He really means business when it comes to his spirituality. And on top of it all, he knows that without God's help, he could do none of it. He does thank God that God has given him the ability to not be like other men extortioners and adulterers and tax collectors and so forth. And while we know we're supposed to dislike him because of the punchline, we have to ask ourselves, I mean, would we really dislike him if we met him? I mean, on the other end of the temple, far from the crowd, is the tax collector. A man whose sins are so obvious, even he's ashamed of them. Too ashamed to mix it up with spiritual people, too ashamed to to enter into the congregation of the righteous. It's hard to really help understand how much we would have disliked this man and how much the hearers disliked him as soon as his identity was made known that he was a tax collector. I mean, think things like Bernie Madoff. But if Bernie Madoff was one of your family members and the first people he ripped off were your other family members, That kind of hatred would kind of well up in you. I mean, he's rich, and he's rich in the sleaziest way. I mean, he has no loyalty, no sense of morality, no sense of family or country or honor. I mean, this is a guy who was your church's treasurer. You knew him, you grew up with him, you knew his kids, and it turned out the whole time he was skimming money off the top of the church's giving All the while, his kids were driving the nicest cars and they lived fat as a family because they were taking it off the backs of God's people. I mean, this man was a Jew who collected taxes on behalf of Rome and got rich by collecting more than was required. That was the only way he could make a living. I mean, he was a mobster in a sense, you know, taking his cut off of everything you did. And the cut he took was arbitrary based on how much he thought he could get away with it at the given time. I mean, he was a bully that was just constantly taking your lunch money and rubbing your face in it. And he did it on behalf of a people who hate you and hate your God and did it all for the sake of his own comfort. And he just showed up to church for the first time in a long while. So who is holy and who is unholy? Who's the saint and who's the sinner? I mean, these are our two characters with their two prayers. One thanks God for the grace given to him to not be like the worst of us. The other has no prayer at all, save God's mercy. So there's two prayers and two people, but notice there's one righteous. We all know the answer. We've read the story, but try to let it impact you the way that it should. Jesus says that one of these men leaves this place righteous. That he goes back to his house completely holy in the sight of God. And the other Goes home a sinner in danger of judgment. Now, if we've learned anything so far about God's ways in this series, we won't like the answer to that question. And we won't like the way that God does math concerning holiness and unholiness or sainthood or the status of sinner. It will not make any logical sense to us. And hopefully, that will be good news by the end. I mean, if we're being honest, one of these guys is better than the other. (laughs) That's not hidden from the text. It's real. The things he hates, uh, the Pharisee, we hate too. I mean, extortioners, the unjust, adulterers, tax collectors. So, yeah, he's a little full of himself. But it's hard not to be frustrated with those in society who do the wrong thing, When we're trying our level best to do the right thing and be the right kind of people. I mean, is that really enough to send somebody to hell? While a simple cry for mercy is enough to send someone straight home, holy and without anything else to do. It's a pretty tough pill to swallow. But part of it's how we look at things. Lewis writes it this way, all the worst pleasures are purely spiritual, the pleasure of putting, some, uh, putting other people in the wrong, of bossing and patronizing and spoiling sport and backbiting, the pleasures of power and hatred. A cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. You see, our Pharisees' problem is he's operating in a way that makes complete sense to our nature, but it will not work in Christ's kingdom. He's comparing everything in the wrong direction. Which brings us to something that I I hope you can really get a handle on this morning, is that you can't measure your holiness by other people's sins. That's not how it works. Paul's all wrote it this way, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but that hasn't stopped us from comparing distances. Uh, That really is how we like to do it. Uh, What the word of God teaches us is that God is not going to evaluate us by others. You aren't going to be graded on how much better you are than your husband or your loud friend or your one lazy sibling or that vain lady online who keeps boasting about herself, you're not going to be graded in accord with your corrupt coworker, or even the Christians who don't get it quite like we do, or the people you stand against in the culture who are so clearly wrong. Nope, not one of those people is going to be brought before the judgment bar of God to be the standard by which you will ultimately come under God's gaze. Instead, we are told that we're being evaluated by the unbending law of God. That shows us the inflexible righteousness of God. And if we look there correctly, and if we still feel pretty good, it's either an utter failure of imagination or a potentially terminal lack of self awareness. I mean, notice the law doesn't merely reveal our sins, that's bad enough. But the law exposes our good works for what they are. Notice this man trusted in himself. And if you ever shine the full light of the law on your good works, you will see a few things. One, it will never unveil something that is fully acceptable to God. I mean, take your best things, the parts of you that you love and that you're not embarrassed by, hold that up to the judgment bar of God. And even that doesn't go past without critique and ultimately condemnation. It won't praise your good works, but it will only reveal your sin. As one author writes, the depth of sin is different from the comprehensiveness of sin. The depth of sin is discerned only when we get really honest when we admit that it is not the sins of the flesh or the momentary flashes of anger that really keep us from God, at least not for very long. We know they are wrong and we quickly seek the Lord's pardon. and know the sins that really keep us from the Lord's mercy are the sins that abide in our good deeds. The pride we take in our accomplishments, the judgmentalism that accompanies our desires for an articulation of the truth, the secret envy and the success of others, the ambition for more power and more influence that marches with us as we set about even to do the Lord's work. There is no part of our lives that are beyond the shadow of the cross. You see, the fact is we can never even fully know the depth of our own sin. Hear me on that we can never really know the depth of our own sin. There'll always be more to learn. Let's, let's put it that way. But even then, we wouldn't know. You could never know what you would do, for instance, or what your character would be if there was a million dollars at stake, $10 million at stake. You know. So you're honest when you found the 10 on the ground that dropped out of the guy's pocket. Great. But would those same morals exist when the temptation was so inflated that the stakes got higher? You could never know what you would do if tempted at the right place with the most glorious opportunity that most people would probably never find out about. You'll never know. What you would be like if all that you love was taken or all constraints were removed. We don't know ourselves fully, nor do we know our potential for sinfully. And God is kind, one, to not let us know that all at once. That would be a lot to bear. But two, he's also kind to not let us go into those for the most part. You and I have only been given glimpses of our sinful nature. And even there, we can barely stand to look at it, which is why it's so hard to admit when it's brought to our attention. But the tax collector, who is full of obvious sin and low on obvious good works, he goes home justified, according to the text, considered righteous by this most holy God. How? We had a great advantage and that he knew there was no way he was going to make it, (laughs) that he had no confidence at all in his good works. He had no righteousness to stand on at all. His only plea could be the mercy of God. And if there was no mercy, there was no hope for heaven or righteousness for him. He knew that if he didn't get cleansing from elsewhere, but he was doomed. So notice he's made holy because he's well aware that he's unholy. And the only hope he has is in a God of all mercy, who's kind to sinners. And this is a truth we find in scripture that God only justifies the ungodly. God only justifies the ungodly. As Paul says in Romans chapter five, that only sinners are saints. It's only the dead who Christ has promised to raise. And because this man's shame and sin was so easy to spot, it was a great advantage to him. Well, if that's the one who's righteous, We have two prayers, one righteous. I want us to close with this, that there's no third way. Now hear me here. Think of this question. What should the tax collector pray next week? Or five years later? What kind of prayer should be on his lips when he gets to the temple then when he's started playing by the rules a bit. Maybe he tithes now and comes regularly. A lot of times we if were asked to think who we are in the text. We would all dutifully say, well, we're the tax collector, of course, not the Pharisee. But I mean, the reality is we're both and we're both quite regularly. But deep down, the truth is we believe that there's a third prayer. That you can somehow move beyond the Lord be merciful to me, the sinner, to some sort of prayer of progress, at least in some way. We know that there's really bad sinners, and we also know that there's really bad hypocrites. But we also think there's another kind, those who are growing and doing their best, and when they have a hiccup, God is there to forgive them. You know, a part-time Savior for part-time sinners. While the Pharisee thinks he's fully good or at least good enough, the tax collector fully bad. I think most of the time we're pretty prone to think of ourselves as a mixture. But what the scripture teaches us is that only sinners are saints. And if you're going to be a saint, if you're going to be holy, it comes from the recognition that you're always a sinner and that you're always ungodly. Now, those may be uncomfortable words, and believe me, they are uncomfortable. Uncomfortable to say, but even more uncomfortable to believe. The next time you get in an argument, I dare you to believe it and say that you are wrong without hesitation. But the reality is, if you have confidence in anything other than Jesus and his righteousness, there is trouble ahead, scripturally speaking this parable teaches us that our good works are more dangerous at one level than our sin. And unless God is merciful to separate us from our trusted good works, they will separate us from God. See, the problem with goodness is that it starts to kill dependence. The problem with progress, right, is that We aren't as needy as we were on the first day. But the scripture promises us that we're just as needy today as we were the day that we first entered. When we pray weekly, uh, that confession of sin, uh, there's probably not one part of the service, not there's not probably, I can guarantee you, uh, there isn't one part of the service I've received more complaints about than the confession of sin. It's not the kneeling. That that does bother some. Uh, and it's not the confessing of sins. It's the wording. And especially, and there is no health in us. I mean, because isn't there a little bit of health in us? Isn't there at least something that we're bringing to the table now that we've been saved and are being sanctified? I mean, are we overstating the issue just a little bit? Well, you see... What we're going to learn for the next several weeks is what the Bible shows us as spiritual maturity and sanctification is not that our sins, if you will, vanish and go away, but we become ever more cognizant of the fact that we really are sinful and in dire need of a Savior. Paul can say toward the end of his ministry that I am the chief of sinners and mean it. Not I was the chief of sinners and have cleaned myself up, but I am currently the chief of sinners. Why? Because he was growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ in such a way that when he saw the holiness of God and the gracious action of his savior, he realized that even his best stuff does not measure up to God's actual requirements. The good news though, is this that if it's true that part of our growth is becoming ever more clear about the distance that we have to go from holiness the good news is that Christ died for sinners that he's the savior of the ungodly that god counts sinners and say as saints and only sinners as saints and our progress in our spiritual life is by always starting again. Always coming back to the same place with the same confession. Son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the beauty of that, as we will learn in the weeks to come, is that it's all that God requires, that he doesn't require you to send your good works up to heaven. Your good works are already there, seated at the right hand of the Father. Everything is already done. You really are righteous in God's sight. So you can stop in one sense, trying to make them good enough, because even in our own confession of faith, it tells us even our best works are still tainted with all of our bad intentions. Instead, you can be honest about who you are, and as you're honest, know that there is a Savior for those who are in actual need of saving. And if that's you, well, then there's good news. The only thing that can keep you from that good news, in one sense, is your own goodness. So acknowledge, if you will, that it isn't there, and celebrate the fact that that Christ is, and he's for you. Let's pray.